ahead and turn in your Bibles or your phones to the book of James. It's toward the end of the Bible back there near Revelation. I will have some things on the screen for you to see, but I want to make sure that you see things in context. So turn in there, if you will. And there's going to be a slide coming up here that I want you to see. Okay, you can't get the slide. All right, well, it's a great picture of my daddy water skiing. <laughs> Hopefully it'll pop up there. Uh, he, Bert Ferguson, he was just more fun than a barrel of monkeys. Uh, the Tennessean called, and they wanted to do a an article on him, take some pictures of him water skiing. He was one of the first people in Nashville to water ski. And so they came out, and instead of wearing a bathing suit, he wore a suit, hopefully we'll get to pop it up there and let you see it. And in the newspaper, on the, the headline, it said confidence on the top of it. And that was him. He was so confident. Also, Mother, there's, there's another picture you're not seeing, but it's him balancing me as a baby. And Mother said he never just, like, held us. He was flipping or doing some sort of gymnastics or something. He was, he was just a daredevil, and I took every step he took. He told me every day that I can remember that I was the smartest and the prettiest and the most talented person that God ever made. And he told me that uh, I constantly, that I was just the best. Now, before you go thinking I was a spoiled, rotten brat, believe me, my mother was put on this earth to keep my feet on the ground. If you knew Janelle, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that was a good thing. Um, I had to be very careful what I voiced in front of Daddy. Uh, if uh, my husband now, Eddie, when we were dating, he pointed out to me, I didn't even realize that it happened, but we would be sitting around after dinner and I would say, I'd like some ice cream. And he would jump up and say, what kind? And out the door. Or crystals at 9 o'clock at night. I remember after we got married, I mentioned in passing that I missed having a piano. And the next thing I knew, a truck's driving up and a piano is delivered. It, that's just the way he was. You know, uh, when I think about Daddy, uh, he was my go-to fix-it person. So fast forward to a time when I was in my 30s, and I was going through a terrible time. It was, it was probably one of the biggest crises in my life that I'd had. And I was full of anxiety and fear, and I needed to talk to him. I beelined to the house. I got there and uh, immediately ran down the steps, and I was going in for a bear hug for him to just wrap around me and tell me everything was going to be all right. But instead, he took my hands, and when I looked at him and I said, Daddy, I'm scared, he said, you know, I have always told you that life is not fair, that life is tough, and I've always told you that you're stronger than you think you are and you can endure more than you think you can. And the next thing he said to me has always rung in my ears. He said, you know, if there's something you can do about it, do it. And if not, don't worry about it. And then he said, and if possible, if you cannot take this personally and just let it roll. Now, I know those things sound very trite. You know, don't worry about it. Let it roll. But to hear those words from my father would always bring me back to reality, would always, would always steady me, would always give me 
a firm foundation. Daddy knew that no matter how much he wanted to shield me from life, that it wasn't possible. And I'll tell you, oh, are you going to show Daddy? Can you show him on the... There he is. Yay. There he is. Ah, oh, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see, I, you know, I love it because he's like looking at me and I'm like, yes, oh well. I'm sure he had done that a hundred times. But Daddy knew no matter how much he wanted to shield me that there were going to be hard times in life and there were going to be the things that we call trials and temptations. And we've heard about being tempted and tried always, always. So in the book of James, he talks about being tempted and tried and it is an amazing way to look at this. So who is this James? Well, James in the Bible, there are several of them. This one is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Pretty good resume, huh? You know, uh, he and Jesus shared a mother, and then there was that whole virgin birth thing. John 7, 5 says that James and his brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe in him. But we do know later on, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that after Jesus died, he specifically appeared to James. And then you can go back and look at Acts. And James is one of the most prominent leaders in the early church there. Now, let's not be too hard on James and his family. Picture your own family dynamic, and you're sitting around the dinner table, and your 30-year-old brother comes in and says, Hey, leaving on a mission trip, just letting everybody know, you know, it's about time everybody knows I am the Son of God. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. And you'd all be looking at each other like, yeah, right. So how does James introduce himself in James 1.1? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he doesn't say there is, look at me. I am the brother of Jesus. I probably would have taken that opportunity myself. But instead, he, he puts himself under. He says, look, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, not only am I a servant, the word for this is bond servant, which means you put yourself under by your own will. So he puts himself under the Lord Jesus Christ. And from here, James is just going to jump right in. Let me tell you, the book of James is filled with what you need to know if you want to be a Christian. It's instructions that he's taken right from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is going to jump in with both feet with a big one. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, the testing that James is referring to here is talking about testing of metals, and it's to determine if they're genuine. A silversmith or a blacksmith or a goldsmith knows how to bring metals to superheated temperatures so that they can hit their melting point. And during that time, they pull away all the impurities of that. And the more purified the metal, the shinier it is, the more malleable it is, the more it can be crafted into an item that can just be incredibly valuable. So, James is saying, let me tell you what it's like to be tested. 
the temperature is going to go up. And in life, you are going to find times that your will is going to be tested, your faith is going to be tested, your endurance is going to be tested because it's going to be super hot. But he said this testing is going to produce something. Something's going to come out of this. This is not going to just be in vain. It's going to produce perseverance. Not a word we use very much, but it produces the ability to be something called steadfast, that where you are immovable, that person, where you are that person in a trial, not running around, not looking at your meager resources, not talking to everybody else, but that steadfast person who is not moved. You see, in those trials, we have to have resistance. There has to have that in order for you to and I to build those muscles that we're going to need to stand up. We need emotional muscles. We need mental muscles. We need all of those things that are going to keep us standing. You know, you can't look in a mirror the night before your 25th reunion and say, hey, I better get in shape. No, it doesn't happen that way. That has to happen weeks or months before when you change the way you eat or you start doing yoga to tone up or you start lifting weights so that you can develop those muscles. Same thing. James 1.4 says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James says there's a full effect to all of this. And the thing is, the full effect, the thing is, is that you will be perfect. Listen to this. Look, it's describing what we can have. Perfect. Got anybody perfect in here? Mature. Got anybody mature in here? Complete. And look at this. Not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. Um. Wow, we sure don't live like that, do we? In fact, we live more like the Beverly Hillbillies. You remember them? The Beverly Hillbillies uh, struck oil. Remember Jed struck oil in his land? Black gold, Texas tea. And they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Do you remember how Granny lived back then? Remember she had the steel out back where she would do her medicines? And uh, they would use ropes to tie up everything, and they hunted for their vittles. They drove that old truck around everywhere. One night, Granny invited somebody to dinner, and she said, How do you like your possum? Falling off the bones tender or with a little fight left in it? (laughs) And they never, ever even used that cement pond. So what good was all that money? What good was it when they lived just like they did when they were back in the hills? Well, you know what? And I've done this. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. When trials come, we act like we are poor spiritual beggars, like we don't have any hope. Again, we're just running around all over the place like chickens with our heads cut off. But James is saying, no, 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 no. Here's what you do. Respond in faith to God. Get those faith muscles where they need to be. Train them up so that you are immovable, so you're resolved to be firmly in place. 
So now it makes sense when we go back and read that second verse again. Read that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind. Now, James is not saying trials are good. There's no good in illness. There's no good in pain. There's no good in the bad things in life. That's not the point. The reason we can count it all joy is that God can use these trials to mold us into the people that we have the potential to become mature and complete. And it is a process And I don't care how old you are or how long you've been a Christian. It is going to continue until we see Jesus face to face. And then you know what it says? We will be like him at that point. We will be like him. Yes, trials bring pain. They do. But you and I can have an unnatural reaction to that. It's called joy. You and I can have a supernatural reaction because it's a reaction to a deep trust in God, God Almighty. We've got to think about it that way. We have to. It can't be how I feel about something. Think about it. Think about the things that you have done on one day because of how you felt. You signed a contract. You put money down on something. You died on a hill about something because you felt so passionate about it, and you were just leaving carnage behind you, and you were going to do it. And the next morning, you wake up, and you think, meh, what was I thinking? And really, the question should be, what was I feeling? Because it's a lot of times how we make decisions, isn't it? So how do we get to these trials? Well, James tells us. Look at verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. No criticism. That's how Jesus, that's how Jesus deals with us. That's how Father God deals with us, gently. No criticism, no strings attached. Think about a time you may have gone to ask somebody for advice or you needed to borrow something or you were really desperately in need for something. And that person sat you down and made you feel like a snail because you'd made bad decisions or you didn't know what you were doing. And if they did give you a gift, it had strings attached. Well, not so with God. Not so with God. It says he gives without finding fault at all. So why don't we ask him? Why don't we turn to him in those times instead of away from him. Why do we do that? Well, our weaknesses, our weaknesses, our weaknesses don't keep us from asking God. The delusion of our own strength does. You see that? The weaknesses, our weaknesses don't keep us from asking God. The delusion of our own strength does. It's like a toddler. Now, me do it or an adolescent, don't tell me what to do, or like most of us, just feel, you know, I can handle this. I can do this. James says, ask for wisdom, and he will give it. Ask, and he will give. He gives singularly exactly what you're going to need to stand strong, 
and steadfast, immovable in this trial, to have the spiritual and mental and emotional muscles that you're going to need. Now, all these verbs, everything we've been talking about, they're in present tense. So remember all your English stuff, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. So we are always asking the always all-giving God. We're always asking the always all-giving God. Now, we've got to receive this wisdom, so pay attention to this. This is the important part. Look at verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, Remember, it does not say you can't cry out. It doesn't say you can't question. There are lots of examples in the Bible where people went to God and they just said, I'm done. One of them was Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, Jason talked to us about Elijah. He had just had this mountaintop experience. The next thing, he's exhausted, and he just says, just kill me now. It doesn't say how you react to the trials is the thing. It says you can't be double-minded. Now, that literally means to have two faces, not being two-faced, literally having two faces. If you can think about a creepy doll, it would have more than one face. Or think about it this way. Somebody's on a boat, and they need to get on a dock. And so they pull up to the dock, and they put one foot on the dock, and they don't make the full transfer, and they've got the other foot on the boat, and you know what happens with that. It never ends up well, does it? So the double-minded person is not going to receive it because he's not on the dock to receive it. He's not there. And also, you and I might even ask for wisdom. You, you, Lord, I've asked for wisdom. But he, he's trying to give you wisdom, but you're all over the place because your anxieties or your fear, and I'm talking to myself too, all of the things that keep us from receiving that because we're so muddled in our thinking and our emotions and the way we're feeling at the time. Or we're angry. We're just mad at God. Or we're resentful that we're even having to go through this and maybe even having to go through this again. It can cause us to have a, like a spiritual split personality. But if we let it, if we let it, the, the wisdom we receive God from God will be right. It will give us his perceptions, his perceptions. It will give us a light will come on in a room. It will give us focus. It will give us a point of reference, which is exactly what we need. Just like when my daddy would say to me, don't worry about it. Let it roll. It's like my father is going to get me centered here for, to do what I need to do. And if we let it, that's what's going to happen. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. That word again. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, the one who hangs in there and doesn't take shortcuts. Because James is trying to tell us something. He's, he's saying if we don't learn how to deal with trials, there is no way we're going to stand up when we are hit with a temptation, which is he goes into the next thing in verse 13. Another biggie. 
He says in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see the spiral down there? Listen to how the message translates this. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We don't like to think about the yuck within us, do we? We've got no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Now, the temptation is not the sin. That, let me get that out of the way. It's how we respond to that temptation. In fact, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but he never sinned. That was in Hebrews 15.4. So how do we respond to temptation? Well, how did you respond to trials? What do we do? We turn to God. We do not turn away from him, which is our inclination to do, especially when we're tempted. We want to hide. We want to cover it up. We ask him for wisdom. We ask him for direction. We ask him to, for help. Because if we don't, it says that we can be dragged away and enticed. Now, enticed is a fishing term, and it means to lure. And like trials, those temptations are designed specifically for you in order to drag you away. Recently, Eddie and I were with a friend of ours from Louisiana. He's an avid fisherman. His name is Mike, good guy. And I said, Mike, tell me a good fishing story. And boy, he, he didn't even hesitate. He just came out with this. Now, let me do a disclaimer right here. I don't know. I have a clue about fishing. So uh, I can drive your boat, and that's about it. So if I say something wrong about fishing, just go with me, okay? It's a good story. So Mike told us about a time that he was in the Gulf of Mexico, and he was fishing for ocean trout. And my understanding is when you cast out, it's going to pop, the lure's going to pop the water like I envision fly fishing. And so he said he caught a trout, the trout took the bait, and immediately dived down to try to escape. So he's, he's reeling it in, and so as it goes under, then he feels this huge tug on the line, and as you've seen in YouTube videos, you know what's going to happen. The line pops up, and there's only a fish head on the, on the end of his line. Now, he said there were porpoise under his boat, and they were hanging out there and eating the fish. He said not only that, he said they would also eat the fish that they had to throw back for whatever reason. He said they would be oxygen-deprived and disoriented and easy prey for those very smart porpoise to just take away, drag away and eat, of course. And so you think, isn't it crazy to think porpoise are that smart? They definitely get the work smarter, not harder picture. So do you get the picture so there's a little fish swimming around, and he's got this whole big body of water. And as he's swimming around, all of a sudden, he sees something with his eye. He is enticed by that lure, and he starts to chase it. 
And as he chases it, then he becomes the bait. He starts getting chased by a bigger predator. You know, there are so many scenarios like this that if we had time, we could, we could talk all day about how we get to a point where the things that we chase begin to chase us. There are a thousand temptations, a thousand of them that start with a look in the eye, being enticed. Those temptations lead us to places that we would never in a million years make the choice to go to. And we would give anything, anything if somebody could help us get out of the things that have now trapped us, those things that are eating us alive because we took the bait. There's a very familiar story in the Bible, and it's full of sex and murder and intrigue and cover-up. Is anything you're going to binge watch on Netflix. So buckle up, and in a few minutes, I'm going to give you cliff notes of this story. You've heard of David and Goliath, the young man who faced the, the literal giant, and they, they said they were going to send him to fight for them, and Israel was going to send one person, but they couldn't get anybody to step up to do it. David, young shepherd boy, came in, and he was going to feed his brothers. And he looked around, and he said, I'll do it. And without sword or shield or anything else to defend him, he took a sling, and he took a stone, and down the giant went. Well, fast forward to 2 Samuel 11, and you're going to see the story of David as king. He's king of Israel, and it says it's the time of year when kings go off to war. But David stayed in Jerusalem. And one afternoon, David was taking a nap, and he was strolling around the roof of his palace. And from his vantage point, he could see the roofs of other places. And as he was looking, the Bible says he saw a stunningly beautiful woman taking a bath, and her name was Bathsheba. You can't make that up. He also found out that she was married to one of his mighty warriors, and he was out fighting for Israel. So he summons Bathsheba to his palace, and he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, they find out later, and so the cover-up begins. So David's got a plan. He will call Uriah in and let Uriah sleep with his wife so she can get pregnant, and then no one would be the wiser. But Uriah's a good patriot, and he refuses to sleep with his wife because it's not fair to the people that are still out there fighting. So that didn't work. So David sends Uriah back to the fighting and he sends him with a message, and it's to Joab, who's the leader of the armies. And he tells, very boldly tells Joab, he said, look, I want you to put David in the fiercest fighting, and when he's there, I want you to pull back because I want him to be killed. And that's exactly what happened. And so Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband, and David and Bathsheba get married. And life is good. And then Nathan the prophet comes to see David. In those days, God spoke through his prophets, and 
David would have, have known that David had something to say to him of great importance. He would have been listening. He might need to make a judgment about something. Nathan tells them a story. He said there's a rich man in this kingdom, and he owns many, many heads of cattle and sheep, and his poor neighbor next door only owns one little ewe lamb. And it's not any ewe lamb. This ewe lamb eats with the family and sleeps with them, and they treat her like a daughter. And that rich man, you know what he did? He was having a dinner, and he cooked that ewe lamb. He stole her from the man and cooked her, and they ate that ewe lamb. Well, by the time Nathan was finished, David was absolutely furious. He said, that man should die, pay back four times what he did. And then he says, because of what he did and had no pity. And Nathan looked at David and he said, that man is you, David. And there it was laid out, no more cover-up, everything uncovered. And David was cut to the heart, and David was convicted. David begged for forgiveness. He confessed his sins. He repented of what he had done. He begged for God's grace and mercy, and God gave it. But there were still consequences. The, the baby that David and Bathsheba had died. But the rest of the story goes that David and Bathsheba had another son. His name was Solomon. Solomon went on to be king after David. And it says that through the lineage of David and Solomon, many generations later, there was a baby born in the town of Bethlehem named Jesus the Christ. You know, David was called a man after God's own heart. He was very capable of giving into temptations, though, just like you and me. And it all started because he was watching a woman taking a bath. What can the harm be in that? But James 1.16 says, look what it says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. In other words, you and I have got to be alert and aware. This stuff can happen to us. It can happen. But here's James' point. Just like with trials, when these things happen, don't cover it up. Don't start hiding. Instead, open up, turn to God, and just like when you're facing trials of many kind, ask him for wisdom. Ask him for help. And our good, good father will respond. He will respond because what God is, you know what? He always is. And who God is, he always is. He doesn't change. Look at James 1, 17 and 18. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Do you see that? It says God brings every perfect gift. Everything he brings is perfect. Why would we not go to him? Everything he brings is perfect. Individually wrapped with your name on it when you need it, especially when you need it, so that we can stand up under trials, so that we can withstand temptation. And we get to call him Father. 
He brings us new birth. We are born again in the Spirit. We become new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. We get to call him Father because of his grace and mercy. And don't miss this part. He calls us his first fruits. Do you see that? He calls us his first fruits. What does it mean? Well, James would have been writing to Jewish Christians. They would have totally gotten this. They had been taught to always give the first and the best of everything they had, their money, their cattle, their animals, whatever, and their crops. You and I have been taught about tithing. We've been taught about first fruits. That's what you're doing today. It's Sunday morning, first day of the week. You're giving your best. You're coming here to worship God. And God calls us his first fruits of all creation, of the majestic hills and the vast oceans, the uh, animals and the fish and the birds. And think about the, the majesty of the sky, the stars and the moon and the sun. Of all these things, he calls you his masterpiece. He calls you his treasure. He calls you his first fruits. So what did this cost him? What did it cost him? It cost him his only son. It cost him Jesus, who is perfect and righteous, yet chose to bow the knee to the will of the Father for you and me, and he became a sin offering for us. And God turned his face from Jesus so that he could look at me. And God took his eyes off Jesus so that he could look at you. So we fix our eyes on him. We hold on to him. We cling to him, turning to him. So this morning, while I've been speaking, I know the Holy Spirit's been doing the teaching. I know there's things that have been going on in your own heart. And when you think about the things that we've been saying today, it's all, it affects all of us. And if, if there's something going on, if there's a trial you're dealing with, if there's something that has tempted you, something that you've been chasing that you don't need to be chasing, that you need to turn away from and you need the strength to not do that, then I want to pray for you this morning. And the words that I'm going to pray are from Psalm 51. And this is a psalm that David wrote in response to what Nathan said to him. So I know they're going to resonate with you. And after we're done, if you would like to go back to the Respond banner, there are going to be some shepherds back there who would love to pray with you, love to talk with you after we're done. So would you stand with me, please? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of our sins. Wash us clean from guilt. Purify us from our sins. We recognize that we've rebelled against you and it haunts us day and night. Against you we have sinned. Purify us from our sins and we will be clean. Wash us and we will be whiter than snow. Create in us clean hearts, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within us. Do not banish us from your presence. 
and don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and make us willing to obey you. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.